0: well good morning. good morning it's good to see all of you it's good to be back here at Ivy Creek and be able to worship with you this morning and I'm excited to be with you and uh, let me just go ahead and acknowledge the fact that when you when your uh, your projectors go out and you don't have words y'all are working hard this morning trying to keep in with that so I just want you to know I, I appreciate that very much and I appreciate will I preach appreciate, appreciate all the sound guys and tech guys that are up there that are doing everything they can to keep Uh, us going lightning is a bad a bad thing when it comes in on a Saturday night and uh, hits some of your stuff but uh, we are excited that we can gather together and it didn't it didn't keep us from being able to gather together this morning and lifting our voices in praise and so I'm excited about that and I'm excited to be back with you I want to I want to just acknowledge up front I want to thank Ted for filling in for me last week while I was gone and to my friend Andy Childs who filled in for me the week prior so that my family could get a Couple of weeks away, and we did enjoy that time, and uh, spent some time away, and had a lot of good adventures, and had a few bears that we had to run away from. And uh, if any of you want to look those up, apparently Caroline has posted some of those on social media, and you will find that I am quite fleet of foot if I encounter a bear. I know that may shock. All of you, but nevertheless, I'll tell you the story about it sometimes. Uh, I, 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 I do think that a morning like this is a good time for me to have a little confession for you um, about me and travel. First of all, um, I'm not the type of person who really enjoys the journey. I like the destination. So for me, it's all about getting to where you're going. I'm not one that likes to take a lot of time just sort of wandering around and just taking our just sweet time getting from where we're, we started to where we want to end up. I feel like the thing that you're supposed to do, what God intended, was for us to get up and to get our stuff ready and then to get to where we're going just as quickly as possible. That has made me a joy to travel with over the years particularly when my children were younger and they were wanting to have potty breaks. It was the most annoying thing in the world. The problem is now I'm the one that needs the (laughs) potty breaks. And so it is, uh, it is those rest areas and, and these buckies that are out there. I mean, uh, if you've never, if you've never stopped at one of those, you ought to at least do it once. Uh, Because it is an amazing thing to see. But they are great because they have, well, they have really nice potties in the Buckies. And so, um, but the problem about stopping those is it has not changed my attitude one bit. You see, I know I have to stop a few more times than I would be, than I would like to do. But what that's done is increase the pressure upon me now to make that time up so that I can still get to where I'm going in the allotted amount of time. And so now I'm, I'm pushing even harder. And, and I will confess to you that my patience has never been one of my top virtues at all. Uh, but my lack of patience with other drivers has gotten worse as well. In fact, in her sweet and kind way, Caroline made the observation when we were traveling that, and I was just simply letting the vehicle in front of me know that slower traffic is supposed to be in the right-hand lane. And I had just gotten to my second point of the sermon that I was preaching to that car who couldn't hear me when Caroline just slipped her hand over on mine and she, she said to me, she goes, It's okay, honey. We're not in a race. And I thought, you poor, poor woman, no one ever told you that yes, we are, and that the winner gets all the gold? And I really felt sorry for her, but she obviously was raised with the same people that were driving in the vehicle in front of me. They say that confession is good for the soul, and so there is my confession. And I have said it a thousand times, and I will have to say it at least a thousand more. I am absolutely not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect pastor. You do not have a perfect pastor here at Ivy Creek. Uh, I I, I need to be reminded oftentimes of my weaknesses and my failures. And oftentimes, the Lord seems to remind me of those when I'm on 285, (laughs) running through Atlanta. But it also happens when I study the scriptures, because when I study the scriptures, I'm reminded of just how far I fall short of of the example that the Lord has set for me to follow. I'm reminded of passages. And and when I was traveling, honestly, this passage came to my thoughts and in my mind as I was driving from Psalm 103, verse eight. The Lord says this, that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in mercy. And I thought about that, and I thought, God, you've never been on I-285 in the middle of rush hour. But he said, Craig, I have, been, I have been with you all your life. I've seen everything you've ever done. I've, I've heard every word you've ever spoken. I know every thought that you've ever had come into your mind. I've seen every deed. I have seen every mess you have ever made. And listen, I want you to know some of the messes that I have made of my own life. Or much worse than any mangled mess you'll find on an interstate at any time. And that's what makes the next words of the psalmist that he wrote in Psalm 103 so beautiful. He tells us that even though we have all failed so miserably, the Lord will not keep his anger forever, the psalmist says. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. That doesn't mean that He doesn't deal with our sin. It doesn't mean that He doesn't correct us. It doesn't mean that He doesn't punish us. And, and, but it does mean that He has shown restraint. It does mean that He has not given to us in the same measure with which we have sinned. The message of Scripture is rather that, rather than taking a heavy hand with us, the Lord has been, as the psalmist makes clear, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding In mercy. Now, all of that this morning was a way of confession, but it was also a way of helping us to understand what I want us to consider for a few moments together this morning. If you haven't already done so, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah. It's about midway through the scriptures, just to the right of Psalms, and if you keep traveling, you'll hit... You'll hit Isaiah, and then you'll go to Jeremiah. And this morning, what I want us to do is turn to chapter 33, and I want us to focus on a passage that typically we read around the Christmas season. But it a—it is a, it is so frankly, it, the, the words that we are going to look at this morning deserve to be contemplated year-round. The text that I want us to consider today comes from verses 14 through 16, and I want to read those for you this morning. Hear, hear the Word of God. The prophet Jeremiah writes this, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up David, a branch to David, a branch of righteousness, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, especially as we recognize that It comes on the heels of a night in which there were so many storms. And Father, just as I did earlier today and I did in this service, I look out across those who are here and have gathered with us this day and I think of how indicative that is of so many lives. There are those that are going through the middle of some storms right now, tough things that they're facing, sadness, surgeries, sickness, all kinds of things that they're going through. And then there are those that are really riding the mountaintops, all kinds of great things are happening in their lives. Father, I recognize that in a congregation this size that we will experience both the highs and the lows, and yet I recognize that you are the constant in all of that. You're the God of heaven. You're the maker of everything seen and unseen. You're our God. You're the one that's constant in our lives. You've been there through every turn of the road. You've been through every valley. You've been through every mountaintop. And I pray this morning that you would help us to draw our attention to you to draw away from the circumstances, the things that would detract from us and and maybe distract us from being able to focus on you. Help us to be able to push those things out of our minds so that we might focus clearly on what you have done for us and the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us. God, I pray that as a result of that, that you you would draw our hearts to you in repentance and in faith. This is my prayer, and I pray in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Now some of you may be familiar with the prophet Jeremiah he he is often known as the weeping prophet and the reason that he is known as the weeping prophet is because he tended to weep over the prophecies that were given to him regarding his kinsmen. Particularly, Jeremiah was a prophet to the nation of Judah. But he also had prophecies that he gave to the nation of Israel. And his message to his kinsmen was was though they had once been a unified nation, though they had once been what we might even call a grand and majestic tree, well, because of their rebellion and because of their sin... That tree would be cut down. That was the gist of a lot of Jeremiah's prophetic words. And such prophecy caused Jeremiah to weep. Yet through his tears, a hope still glistened. A hope that that can be heard even in the words that I read for you earlier from verses 14 through 16. And the image that Jeremiah paints for us, we can know that there can be special cheer and grace that's available to us even when our sin and even when our failures would threaten to make us weep as well. So this morning I'm going to do what I sometimes do. I don't do it all the time, but this morning I'm going to. I'm going to to, to provide you my sermon in a sentence up front. It's not going to appear on our screens this morning, obviously, because they're down, but you should have it there in your bulletin. And the sermon in a sentence, really the summary, if I were going to condense everything I want to say to you down to a sentence, it would be this. It's simply that in his grace and mercy, God redeems the broken who have made a mess of their lives by decorating them with a special beauty that comes only through Christ. That's really what I believe we find the prophet Jeremiah telling us here in this passage. And and, and the question simply is, how does God do all of that? How does he go about accomplishing that goal? Well, the first thing there on your outline that you'll see is I want you to help help you figure this out is just this. God adorns those who have failed with his purposes. God adorns those who have failed with his purpose. Now, failure is not really an enjoyable subject to think about, Uh, particularly when we think about our own failure. I recall the first time that that I ever really failed, and what I mean by that, I mean really, really failed. Um, Some of you have heard me tell the story before. I won't rehash all of it, but my first real Heartbreaking failure occurred when, when I flunked my final exam in my first course of the U.S. Navy's nuclear power program. I, I didn't just flunk it. I bombed it. I, I made about as low of a grade as you can make. And summarily, I was brought into my officer's uh, office and... And was told basically, you're you're done. There's no second chances you're gone. And I remember going out to a payphone and calling my dad. And and I, I very distinctly remember those tears coming down my 18-year-old face. And I remember thinking that my world was over. Everything that I had planned on for the last year, year and a half of my life just was flushed down the tubes. And to this day, I cannot think, I can't drive through or think about going to the city of Orlando, Florida, and I cannot hear the words nuclear power without being reminded of my failure. Maybe some of you understand that. It's not Maybe it didn't come from being in the service or being attached to flunking a test, but maybe you understand that kind of pain and it comes from remembering the pain that was associated with the failure of a career or maybe it's the pain that was associated with the failure of a of a marriage or maybe it's the pain that's associated with failing with with a relationship with your with your children or or maybe it's just the failure in your walk of faith whatever your particular story maybe maybe like me, you're sometimes reminded of your failure and you experience those same feelings of pain and disappointment all over again. Well, I want you to know that the Jews who read Jeremiah's prophecy that I read for you earlier would have been reminded of their failure and the failure of their people. The Lord Lord says through his prophet that, that he will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. And I believe that those words would have instantly called to mind an earlier prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, if you've ever had a tree that you've cut down in your yard, you know that that sometimes little sprouts start start shooting up from that root. And you, if you can picture that in your mind, you can begin to picture exactly the imagery that, that Isaiah is calling to mind. And for the Hebrew people, that was an image of shame. You see, Jesse was the father of David, who was the founding king, of, of one of the founding kings of Israel, during their glory days. An eternal kingdom was promised to David. And Israel expected greatness to follow. But the people sinned and they rebelled against God. And as a result, the kingdom was divided. And and the the northern part was attacked by Assyria. The southern part was attacked by Babylon. And both both sides were taken into captivity. And this once grand and glorious tree was cut down to nothing but a stump. It was whittled down and all that was left was this stump. And that was what was left. and Jeremiah's words here in chapter 33 only reiterated what the Hebrew people knew in their hearts: that they were failures. Yes, they were God's people, but, but they had turned their backs on God, and now they found themselves facing terrible consequences uh, because of their rebellion. Even so, don't miss, don't miss how this passage is infused with hope. You see, even amid failures like that, God still had a purpose for them. And he says that a branch of righteousness will will shoot up from that stump. And that branch would would save Israel and and it would rule again with righteousness and with with justice. In other words, God was not done with them yet. I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to wear this, this little pin. And I can't remember the the series of all the letters on that pen, but basically every, every letter stood for a word in the sentence. And the sentence basically was this, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Listen, that is exactly what we find right here. God was not finished with Israel yet. He... It may seem surprising to you, but God uses miserable failures who have messed up bad in their life. God comes in and brings them up and lifts them up out of the mire and out of the muck in which which they have fallen. And God picks them up and beautifies them. He adorns them with his purpose. That's always been his M.O. In, in the New Testament, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not. Why? Why has he chosen all of them? To bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, another for God to display who he really is, he uses the insignificant. He uses the base. He uses the despised things. He uses the things that have failed and messed up in order to do amazing things for heaven's purposes. And in a very real sense, we see that displayed for us in the Gospels and the calling of the the disciples. Think about Jesus and the calling of the disciples. The, The men that he called to himself were not the most religious scholars of the day. They were not the erudite. They were not the privileged. They were not the guys that you and I likely would have called to come around us to be our disciples. And yet Jesus called these men and he set the world on fire with their mission and their ministry as a result of the time that they spent with him. That ought to stir up hope. Within all of our hearts. Because you see, like those disciples and like, like Israel, maybe, maybe your life is littered with many stumps. In fact, some of you may see your life as just one huge stump made up of many failures. Know this. As long as the God of Israel lives, so do his purposes. And know this, God makes a habit of decorating and beautifying and adorning those who have failed with his purposes. That's the first way that we see that God in his grace and in his mercy actually redeems broken people who have made a mess out of their lives. The second way, the second point on your outline is this. We see that God does this. He covers the unfaithful with his unfailing love. He covers the unfaithful with his unfailing love. Notice what Jeremiah says that this righteous branch, this shoot that was going to come up from the stump will do according to verse 15. He says that he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now immediately we recognize that this new ruler that, that Jeremiah is speaking about. We recognize that what he's, he's going to do is that he's going to act justly and he's going to act righteously as opposed to all of what those wicked kings that had followed David after David had died. As opposed to the way that they had ruled, this new ruler was going to rule in justice and in righteousness. And when that happened, then the nation of Israel was going to enjoy peace and safety again like they had had once before. In fact, if you back up just a couple of verses to verse 12 and 13, listen to what Jeremiah says there. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, and in all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the the land of Benjamin... And in the places around Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. What these verses tell us is that there would be a return to prosperity and to peace and to safety in this land that had become so desolate because of of Israel's sins and because of their their rebellion against God. But none of that would come as a result of anything that they did. It would not... their, Their prosperity and their peace would not come back because they had earned it in some way. No, it would come because the Lord, Israel's God, would cause all of that to happen for them. Though the people had been unfaithful to Him, God who was the one who, that, that had been offended and the one who had been sinned against, he would still be faithful in showing his love to them. I want you to know that God's unfailing love toward unfaithful people like, like these Israelites is really the recurring theme throughout the scriptures. It's the theme of the Old Testament book of Hosea. The Old Testament book of Hosea is about a prophet That God called and said, I want you to marry a harlot. I want you to marry a, a prostitute. And I want you to take her as your wife and I want you to love her. And Hosea does just as God commands, but Gomer, who is Hosea's wife, she continues the lifestyle that she had before they were married. She lives a life of promiscuity. And even though she bears Hosea children, she she actually abandons her family and she continues to live the life of a harlot. And eventually, Gomer's lifestyle ended up with her being a slave, being auctioned off on the public square. And as she stands there naked and, and humiliated, Hosea comes and buys her back for himself. She was his wife, and yet he paid the price to redeem her. And he takes her home and he cleans her and he dresses her and he restores her and he loves her. Now, we may immediately try to understand this story from Hosea's perspective. And we may try to imagine ourselves in his shoes and, and, and we may begin to ask him, what kind of man does that? I mean, who would, who would go back and take somebody who had walked all over him and, and completely just disregarded his love and treated him with such disdain? Who, who would love somebody like that? But listen, if we approach it from that perspective, if we try to identify with Hosea and figure out how he could love like that, we're missing the point. Because before we, we we're actually identifying with the wrong character. You see, what the scriptures reveal to us and what we know about ourselves is that when it comes to our relationship with God, we are much more like that adulterous wife named Gomer than we are with the steadfast loving husband named Hosea. And here's the reality of the fact. At no point in my life has God ever abandoned me. At no point has God not ever been faithful to me and to his promises that he has made to me. Yet, I confess that I shudder to think of all the times that I have turned my back on him and given my affections and my attention to other things. All the times that I have, taken, I have taken his love and my salvation for granted. I want you to know that was Gomer's problem. And it wasn't just Gomer's problem, it was Israel's problem. And it wasn't just Israel's problem, it's your problem. And it's my problem. We are unfaithful people. And as the old hymn says that we just sang earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. But here's the beautiful hope of this passage. You see, though Israel had been unfaithful and though she had played the harlot, God promised to send this branch of righteousness whose whose kingdom would restore her safety and peace and prosperity. God the one who is always faithful, would do this for her. And I want you to know that's good news for you and for me as well. You see, the message of Jeremiah is that even though we are deserving and may be experiencing the punishment of God for our sin, God still loves us. And his love is unfailing, even though we have been unfaithful. Listen, in his grace and mercy, God redeems the broken who have made a mess of their lives by decorating them with a special beauty that only comes through Christ. And he does this by adorning those who have failed with his purpose. And he does it by covering the unfaithful with his unfailing love. But then also notice with me that we see, according to this passage, the third point that I want you to note on your outline is that he dresses the shameful with his righteousness. He dresses the shameful With his righteousness. The latter half of verse 16 tells us that when when the branch comes, when this new ruler that Jeremiah prophesied about comes, well, the nation represented by Judah and and Jerusalem, they would be saved. And, And as a matter of fact, Jeremiah says of that nation, she will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now listen, sometimes. Sometimes great scripture truths are, com- are not accompanied by big flashing lights and big horns that are announcing it. Sometimes those wow moments, those critically important wow moments of scripture, they kind of they sneak up on you. And that's what I think happens right here. And the reason that I believe that is, this is such a crucial point, but it's one that kind of sneaks up on us, is because because when the prophet says that she will be given this name, the Lord our righteousness, well, what makes that interesting is if you look back just 10 chapters to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, you'll read this. Because there the prophet says with regard to the Messiah, he says, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. And do you see how amazing that is? Think about this for just a second. In in chapter 23, we are told that the Messiah, that the coming deliverer and Savior will be named the Lord, our righteousness. But then here in chapter 33, just 10 chapters later, we find that this despised and and, and sinful and unfaithful failure of a nation, Israel, will also be called the Lord, our righteousness. You see how absolutely amazing that is? What that means is that God gave his own name to his people. Don't move past that too quickly. Don't don't. Don't just gloss over that. It's absolutely astounding and transforming. You see, for most of us, when, when someone offends us, when someone angers us or, or, or does something that, that, that hurts us, or sins against us, our natural response is to throw them away and be done with them, to limit any kind of interaction that we will have with them. Oftentimes we treat them like a huge cigarette butt that we throw on the ground and we push it underneath our feet and we're done with them. We don't want anything else. Not so with God. God is wholly other from that. In fact it might sound impossible that these Israelites who had gone after and worshiped false gods and given their love and affection to others that were no gods at all, but yet they followed after them. Such a mixture of sin and failure. How could they even still be counted special to God? But to prove to them that they are, Jeremiah declares that God gives them his own name. And as broken and as shameful as they are, God identifies himself with them by calling them his own name. But he gives them more than just the name. They get the significance of the name as well. The branch that is to come, the Messiah, is called the Lord, our righteousness. And that name itself tells us that God will provide the righteousness that sinful people could never provide for themselves. He will cover them. He will dress them so that they will shine with the righteousness that belongs to him. What an amazing, wonderful, astounding thought that is. Of course, we know that this righteous branch from the stump of David and this ruler who, who would come from the line of David and this one who would execute judgment and righteousness is none other than Jesus Christ. The New Testament goes on to reveal to us that God would provide his righteousness through his own son, Jesus Christ, As Paul tells us, he who knew no sin would become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, Christ would cover us with his body and with his blood so that our sins might be washed away and atoned for and so that we would shine with the righteousness that belongs to him. So what we've come to understand from Jeremiah's prophecy today is simply that God adorns those who have failed with his purpose he, he covers the unfaithful with his unfailing love, and he dresses the shameful with his righteousness. And he does all of that by way of showing us his grace and mercy, because he redeems those who, just like us, have failed and made a mess of their lives by decorating us with a special beauty that only comes through Christ. The question is why is that so important? Why, why, why is that such an important thought for us to consider? Well, the obvious reason is that it applies to every single one of us. There's none of us that that this message does not apply to. All of us have failed and made a mess of our lives. Now, for some of us, it's a lot easier to acknowledge and and to admit because the train wreck of our life, well, all of those train cars are scattered across the landscape and everybody in the world can see just how big a mess we've made of our lives. For some of us, there's nothing that we can hide. But there are a lot of us in this room, we've made a lifetime out of hiding our crazy from anybody else to see. We've kept it stuffed down and covered over. And from the outside looking in, it might look like, hey, you know, they've got everything all together. When he drives down the road, I bet he doesn't get mad at anybody who cuts him off and gets in the left-hand lane. But the fact of the matter is, all of us have these things that gnaw at us. And the truth of the matter is, we all know that if people could really see on the inside, if they knew what we were thinking, if they knew what our inner feelings were, we would be ashamed for all of that to come out in the open. Here's what I want you to know. None of that is hidden from God. God sees every last bit of it. The Bible tells us he knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows the words that come from our lips before we ever speak them. He knows everything we have ever done. He knows every mess that we have ever made. You might be able to hide it from the person sitting next to you, but you will never hide anything from God. And that is why, that is why a little passage like this tucked away in an Old Testament prophecy is so important. It was important not just to the ancient Israelites. It's important to you and to me because it offers us hope. It tells us that light has shone into our darkened lives. And it provides us with a reason for why we're here today. Have you ever thought about why Christians gather together on a Sunday morning and they get together and they they, they get together with other folks week after week? Have you ever wondered really what the value of us getting together and singing songs of adoration and praise to this God that we have voiced our our songs to earlier? Why do we do that? Why do we pray to Him? Why Why do we offer Him our lives? Why do we open this sacred book, week after week after week, and pour over its words and study it. Why is that such an important thing? It is because of this simple truth. Jesus Christ has come to change our lives. He has come, he has come to, to set us free from our sin. And he has come to bring us life and bring us hope and to fit us for heaven. And he has done all of that by giving himself as the sacrifice For our sin. Doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Because Jesus has done that for you and for me, then my invitation this morning is very simple. If you have never bowed your heart in humility before God and admitted your sinfulness, if you have never come before him and acknowledged the mess that you have made out of your life, And I want to invite you to do that today. God does not expect you, listen, he doesn't expect you to clean everything up and shine it up and get it all right before you come to him. If that were the requirement, none of us would ever find salvation. Salvation has found us in the person of Jesus Christ who has come to to give his life in exchange for ours. And what is required is humble repentance and faith. My invitation this morning is for you to drop the facade of having everything put together and simply come to Jesus. Trust in him. Acknowledge that he and he alone can save you and place your faith completely in him. Now listen, if you've done that, then the second part of my invitation is equally simple. In light of all that is yours in Christ, in light of all that the Lord has done for you, then I invite you to commit to living your life completely and solely for him. Don't, Don't just let Sundays be the day that you lift your voice in praise of your master and your creator and your savior. In fact, as the words of the scripture say, let every word of your mouth, let every meditation of your heart be found acceptable in his sight all the time, every day. Commit yourself wholly and unreservedly to him and live your life with honor and in honor of the one who not only gives you the breath that you breathe, but has given you life everlasting through his own death. In his grace and mercy, God redeems those who have failed and made a mess of their lives by decorating them with a special beauty that only comes through Christ. He has done that by adorning those who have failed with his purpose and by covering the unfaithful with his unfailing love and by dressing the shameful with his righteousness. Now, for those that that is your testimony, there's a wonderful hymn that we sing in the church. It's one of my absolute all-time favorites. And, and it's, it's by a, a man's last name is Moat. He wrote it, I think, in the 1870s. Will can correct me if that's not correct. But his, his, the title of it is My Hope is Built on nothing less and if you, if you grew up in church you probably heard it many times when we sang it a few weeks ago and, and the first verse is my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus name on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand it's that last verse though and we're going to sing that song here in just a minute but that last verse And y'all have been singing without words all day long, so you're going to get to sing without words again. And if you know it, go ahead and join in with me. But it's that last verse talking about being dressed in his righteousness. When, when, When Christ comes for us and when he sees us, he doesn't see us in our own sin. What he sees us is dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And that is our only hope. All of the ground is sinking sand. And so that last verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for the fact that you don't toss us away when we fail. You are about redeeming those who have made a mess of their lives. And you do that by beautifying us, adorning us with the grace that you have and that you offer to rotten sinners like me. And even though we have been unfaithful to you, chased others, other gods and other things to satisfy us when only you can satisfy us you remain faithful to us and you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so that his righteousness his perfect life everything that we should have lived he did and his righteousness is credited to us to our account through our faith thank you for I believe that there are those here this morning who need to come to grips with that. Some maybe for the very first time. They need to humble themselves before you and confess you as Savior and Lord. Lord, my prayer is is that they would not allow any distractions to prevent them from doing that, that your Holy Spirit would would move in their hearts even now as I pray for them. There are others in this room that may have gotten away from that and their heart had grown cold to that truth, but I pray your Holy Spirit would put a, a white hot fire within them again that they would give themselves wholly and completely to you to follow you with everything that they have, forsaking all others, that they would come only to you and follow you. So that's my prayer this morning. And I ask it, God, that you would do it, that you would make this happen for your glory and for your honor. This is my prayer in Christ's name. Amen.